Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is writer-director Vanessa Perjo. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure, my pleasure. Now, we're here to celebrate the release of your short film, The Widow's Last. Um, do you want to talk us through, give us a brief synopsis to what that's about and how people can watch it? Absolutely, yeah. So The Widow's Last is a historical drama and it's set during the third year of the Great Hunger in Ireland, so and Black 47, which is essentially the worst year of the famine. And it tracks the story of a young widow who's uh, essentially trying to save her son from fever. Um, and she stumbles across uh, what happens to be a wounded English land agent. Um, and essentially this land agent is somebody that she would consider to be her enemy, somebody that's brought the famine and the suffering upon her. And she's faced in this moral predicament, what do I do? Do I continue to help my enemy um, and bring him into my home? Or do I, um, you know, steal from him and try and, you know, find some food and survive? Um, so it's a question of survival, um, you know, uh, over humanity. And it's about really exploring um uh, I guess, is the cost of our survival worth the price of our humanity? And that's where the kind of film sits within this context. And obviously, we've uh, it's been inspired by so many, um, you know, wonderful stories, um, uh, true stories from the famine itself. But obviously, the, the story itself is not... Um, is not a true story, if that makes sense. So it's Got kind you. of drawn from the history, but it's... Um, There's truth sort of there, but there isn't, of... there isn't that person literally that exists. Ab absolutely, yeah. So how yeah. can people watch it? Uh, so the film can be watched uh, on a platform called Omeletto, which is a YouTube streaming platform. Um, and they sort of have branded themselves as the money ball for short film. So they uh, sort of put a bunch of award-winning short films up on their platform and they use YouTube, YouTube algorithms to try and sort of um, promote films and get them out there to a wider audience. Bastards should pay for what they've done. That's all we have left. My God! We shot an Englishman. We need your help in finding him. What awards or, or screenings did you get for this film when it had its festival run? Where did you, where did it get to play? Well, I was really stoked. The the one festival I was so wanting the film to play at was the Galway Film Festival, which is uh, a wonderful festival in Ireland, and um, you know so many of our cast and our crew are Irish as well, and obviously it's such a 
beautiful, you know, it's an Irish story. So I really was uh, very keen that it had its premiere there. So that's where we premiered and it was, it was amazing. It was so fantastic. I mean, we got nominated in the best film category alongside, I think it was Benjamin Cleary and his film Wave. And he won the Oscar, um, the Oscar for best short film the year beforehand. So wow. I, I was just in awe that we were, you know, playing amongst such wonderful, um, you know, wonderful short films and just meeting so many wonderful Irish filmmakers and uh, just seeing seeing an audience reaction. And then after that, we played probably, I would say, at about 25 different um, festivals, international festivals. Um, probably most of them were um, American. Um, we played at a bunch more Irish film festivals. Uh, a bunch of them were Oscar and BAFTA qualifying. Um, and then we picked up some awards uh, for Best Short Film and for, I think it was Best Production Design as well so yeah it was great it was wonderful well look that's uh that's that's the background to your film and, and what you've chosen to do and what we're going to talk about is five great period films and we'll sneak in a bonus one to make it six to talk about yours in the to your film as well <clears throat> excuse me Fair. and uh this is this is to the uh the five great format that i usually do so for anyone who's tuning in for the first time there's five films and each film we get to discuss for for five minutes, and we do that against the clock. And when um, when pig barks, which is uh, you'll have listened to the Nev Pierce one that I gave you, which was five yeah. British horrors. Back then, I was uh, sporting, I think probably Edgar Broughton band out Demons Out as me uh, as my into as my alarm. But I've since moved on. <laughs> I have Pig the dog, who's a French bulldog living in Kennington. I'm going to get him sampled <laughs> one day, but for now, this is this is the pretend one of him. Um, Brilliant. So every Brilliant. five minutes when you hit, I was going to say, you heard that bark okay? I did. All good. Brilliant. Okay. It's just had a little bit of jeopardy. It's not It's not a kind of <laughs> finite thing where the world explodes. Um, if you carry on talking, I won't be upset. Uh, but yeah. most people tend to go, oh, right, okay, it's five minutes then, is it? Um, and uh, and it does it does fly. And, um, and yeah, finish your thought and, and stuff. But... Um, We'll, we'll use it to move on to the next film because the the general basis is that we want to spend equal amount of time on all film on all the films because it'd be yeah, very easy to pick any one of these films and speak to them for speak about them for hours and uh, yeah and I think what would be useful um, given given the context of you making a period movie is maybe draw attention to elements of period as from a filmmaker point of view that you kind of admire in these pieces that you've chosen. Oh gosh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. no, a bunch of them are, have been inspiring for many reasons. And actually a couple of them inspiring for different reasons because of the sort of feature that I'm doing next. Is, um, cool. Well, you, you you give me all the context you want, Vanessa. I'll be listening. Lovely. Um, it won't be a monologue, so don't worry. You're not like five minutes and then you have to talk for all that time. I will, I will join you in the conversation, so don't feel under pressure. Oh, great. That's good. <laughs> Very good. All right. And and what we're going to do, we're going to break a bit of break with tradition. Um, we're going to... Uh, do it in period date order. So usually I do oldest film to newest film, but we're going to do it oldest period to newest period, which I quite like. Um, as a as a person who does a lot of these podcasts, any break from the norm keeps me on my toes. Trust me, Vanessa. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so um, without further ado, clock is ticking on The Revenant, which is set in 1823, you tell me. safe thing to do is track a new course back up online. Then what we gonna do? Sit out there like a bunch of goddamn ducks. You and your half-free son get to walk on out? I'm talking to you. Yeah, so this this film, uh, when it came out, yeah, I, I think has been uh, an amazing, you know, obviously Leonardo DiCaprio won the Oscar for this performance um, and absolutely thoroughly deserved. I think for me, the thing that just absolutely captures me about this film is the cinematography um, and the way that the director Alejandro Inarato has just um, created this world, this absolutely immersive world. And it essentially turns what could be quite a, a creaky frontier 
drama into something that's grueling, it's exquisite, it's mystical, it's a survival drama that just makes you think, oh my goodness, I never want to go outside again. <laughs> um, it's, it's grueling to watch from start to finish. And the cinematography is amazing. Like at the very beginning, I think they throw you, they plunge you into this opening sequence where you've got the chaos of battle and it's one single move and it just carries through and you're just, you know, surrounded by the chaos of it. And he uses this single camera move quite effectively through the whole film and it was around the time that um uh, Birdman came out at around the same time and I think for me Birdman was quite disorientate disorienting and it made me kind of very aware of the camera mm. whereas actually this had the opposite effect for me it actually threw me into the drama and made me um feel immersed in the action yeah the, in a way the, that I thought the, was really the, 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 the... The, in the middle of the, the bare trees and the, and the and the sort of grey dark earth and stuff, you're kind of you, you're just trying to figure it all out, and it's not quite you don't get quite yeah. enough time every time, but but you're, you're a picture's absolutely. Forming. And then of course the bear sequence. I mean that was one continuous shot. I mean it was just it's just ridiculous. The the stuff that they achieved was amazing. But actually what really struck me was the way that they used because it's obviously set um you know uh, in the middle of sort of nowhere really in a very very barren desolate harsh landscape and they used that landscape as a character within the film it was almost like nature was a force to be reckoned with and it was as if um you know leo's cap uh, caprio's um character was fighting against nature itself and they had these um pretty intimate shots where you were kind of right up close in the character's face and it was sort of you know um a shot of his eyes and his you know mouth and it was like so intimate and then at the same time they had these extreme wide shots where they just pulled out and you saw the vast landscape and you just felt his absolute isolation and desolation in the middle of this kind of crazy place and for me i i just absolutely loved it and the grading as well the, the fact that they used um you know the the very cold colors during the day but at night they had this kind of airy red light which kind of was almost reminiscent to me of sequences that they had in Macbeth where you had this kind of otherworldly light um so I I just love this I love the soundtrack I love the performances I think one of the things the performance does is it's very um it's not a verbal performance it's a very physical performance um there's very sparse dialogue throughout the film and you know a moment that comes to mind is when he put leo pulls himself out of the grave and he crawls across to the the earth to get to his son and there's no words it's just it's all in his action it's all in his body movement and i just think it's um it's just really powerful and i obviously have used this uh i'm sure you could probably see references of this film in my own film um because you know it was something that's really inspired me uh in terms of the way that the landscape fed into the story well also also as well you you it might not be necessarily the 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 small to big in terms of close up of faces and stuff but certainly you 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 were using close ups of details of nature and then going whoa it's quite yeah. expansive it's quite the expansive place which is wild and and, and sort of unt almost like untouched in a way so you're kind yeah. of wherever you step there's no there's not a convenient thing to hold on to whatsoever um, yeah. I, you mentioned grueling, and and I think I remember when I watched it at the cinema, The Revenant, and it was, it was a film where even though I'd sat still in my seat for two hours and a bit, I actually felt exhausted. Which for a film to sort of impose <laughs> yes. exhaustion on you, um, uh, my wife and I, when we watch films, we often sort of joke about whatever it is. Usually, it's some heightened thing, and you go, "Oh, we'd never survive in this time, would we?" And The Revenant is maybe the poster boy for that one. Absolutely. There's one scene I think where he carves out the horse and he kind of shelters in the horse in the mm. middle of a snowstorm and it's just crazy. And it's you feel so cold watching it. You're watching it and you just see the breath coming out of his mouth. And I mean, I, I kind of feel sorry for um, you know Leo and what he had to go through to make it, but um, it, it definitely comes across on the screen. And actually, I remember it similarly in our film. There was one moment because of Ireland that's such a um, you know, wild landscape. Oh, sorry. Stop there. <laughs> well, look. I should stop. Well, yes, you can indeed. So, thank you for that. Um, we're going to do a little bonus, a little bonus segment from the usual five because we're going to talk about your movie. Because if you what, if you three years, if you three years after three years of the famine, that's eighteen. Black forty-seven, so eighteen forty-seven. Eighteen forty-seven. Okay, so we're eighteen forty. So we're going to jump to eighteen forty-seven for the widow's last. Now, for me, having uh, having watched it. Uh, and now having spoken to you, what's a Kiwi living in London 
inspired to write and direct a movie <laughs> set in uh, in uh, the height of the famine in Ireland? Talk us through that. That's a very good, yeah, very, very good question. Um, yeah, so the whole sort of genesis of the idea really came about um, because I was entering a competition called uh, the Pitch Film Fund, which is a film fund that's run uh, by the Bible Society in collaboration with Real Issues Films. And essentially what they are tasking uh, filmmakers to do is to find a biblical story or a biblical text and adapt that for a modern audience. Um, so essentially I sort of um, came across this and obviously there are so many films that, uh, you know, today use the Bible as a reference and do it so effectively and beautifully. Um, you know, Silence, uh, The Passion for Christ. I mean, there's just, there's so many. Um, so yeah, for me it was, uh, a, a great challenge, an amazing prize. They had a 25K production budget and amazing production support and they flew to Hollywood. So I was like, why not? Let's go for it. So I started sort of really searching for a story and I really wanted to find something that resonated with me um, and uh, struck a chord because I think it's important to find characters that um, that speak to us and that also have an arc and a journey and uh, something, a message to say to us as well. Um, and so I stumbled across the story of the widow and Elijah, which is a story um, which is also set in a famine and it's set during the time where Elijah, the prophet, calls down a famine upon the land and Queen Jezebel, who's the queen at the time, is essentially chasing down. Uh, she, she chases him. So he's on the run. And uh, essentially anybody that finds him would be up for um, harboring a fugitive and potentially would die. And the amazing thing about the story is that Elijah comes to this town of this widow and the widow is suffering and her son is about to die. And she's out collecting wood and food uh, to, to cook her last meal for her son. And she stumbles across Elijah and he says, come and, you know, make me some food. Um, and she says, it's the last of what I have. And essentially he's her enemy um, because he's the one that called down the famine on the land that's killing her and her son. And I just, it's an amazing story where she gives the last of what she has to someone that would be considered an enemy. An amazing miracle happens and uh, there's enough food and her son is saved. And I thought, what a powerful story to sort of chart, you know, what, what could cause this woman to make that decision to give her last to this person? What would provoke such an act of faith? Um, and then I started looking at, you know, how could I set this story? Where could it be? What context could we have it in? And obviously because it's set in the famine, the story of the Irish potato famine came to mind and I started reading uh, literature and text on it and I'd not read much about it at all. And I was just overwhelmed and shocked by, <laughs> by the history and so moved by it. And I was just really surprised that not much had been made on this subject at all. I think at the time it made it, Black 47 hadn't arrived on the scene. The only thing that had been made was like 20 years ago. And I thought, gosh, these are stories that so need to be told. Um, and there's so much in this. And so, yeah, it just started a passion for me, a love for the Irish, a love for um, the history of the Irish. And um, that's really how the story was born. <laughs> and and when you when you were shooting in such a, such a wild uh, environment, as uh, as we see on the camera, how how far away from civilization are? I mean, obviously Ireland's not a massive country, but but in terms of logistics and getting kit and getting crew and cast there, how how into the wild are you in terms of that shoot? Oh no, we were we were properly wild. We went properly wild, man. Uh, <laughs> it was good fun. Um, we were off the grid. We had no internet. We had no um, connection. We had to go down to base camp. It, 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 we were hanging off the side of a mountain and it was a real famine cottage that we shot at. So we shot at this uh, location called Glenangequin Park and uh, the, the cottage that we shot at was, a, a, as I said, a historically a real famine cottage. And, you know, it just, we walked in and there was no um, uh, sort of furniture or anything like that. It was just dirt, earth and a fire. And it just, I remember there was one really powerful moment where um, the guy who owns the park came and told us the story of the family that lived in that cottage and the history of it. And it just felt amazing to be literally bringing to life the history of this place. And the, you know, it was, it was an incredible experience. And there was one scene where we shot the graveyard scene and we had to climb up a mountain with a minimal cast and crew. And it was literally torrential rain. Um, and we were ducking in between takes, hiding in, um, you know, the, the shelter that we'd, we'd built up there and it was freezing cold and I was terrified that the actors were gonna you know freeze on the side of a mountain I mean they did not have to act like they were shivering it was so cold um so yeah it was wild it was rugged it was uh but it was such a bonding experience all of the cast and crew just bonded because we all got stuck in and did it together and it was just amazing yeah there you go you almost you almost did that on cue there almost did that on cue ah! Let 
Let's remind Brilliant. let's remind people then how can how can they watch uh, the Widows Last? Uh, so it can be watched on omeletto.com. So that's O M E L E T O.com. And uh, you just look it up on their website. Brilliant. Well, like I say, we'll put a sh- we'll put a link in the show notes and then we'll we'll shift forward in time now in your pit five great period dramas to a film I haven't seen, um, The Professor and the Madman. Um, Professor Lovely. James Murray begins work compiling words for the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary in the mid-19th century. Gentlemen, I'm afraid nothing short of a panacea is called for. I submit that the extraordinary, the unconventional, Mr Murray, is the solution and our salvation. Your account, though a bit dramatic, is true, Freddy. But we need something more than impassioned advocacy. Qualifications come to mind. Perhaps a bachelor's degree. Qualifications, yes. Well, um, I'm fluent in Latin and Greek, of course. And beyond those, uh, I have an intimate knowledge of the Romance tongues. Italian, French, Spanish, Catalan. And to a lesser degree, Portuguese, Vaudois, Provençal, and other dialects. In the Teutonic branch, I'm familiar with the German, Dutch, Danish, and Flemish. I've specialized in Anglo-Saxon and Meso-Gothic, and I've prepared works for publication on both these languages. I also have a useful knowledge of Russian. I have sufficient knowledge of Hebrew and Syriac to read at sight the Old Testament and the Peshito, and to a lesser degree, uh, Aramaic, Arabic, Coptic, and Phoenician, to the point where it was left by Jesenius. Uh, Forgive me rattling on... uh, I'm sure you have questions. Yeah, so this film um, was a relatively unknown film. Uh, I I wasn't aware of its existence until I really stumbled across it on, I think it was Netflix, uh, by chance. And I saw it had Sean Penn and Mel Gibson. I was like, oh, this must be a good film. Um, and started watching it. And, yeah, it's a really compelling true story. So as you as you mentioned, it's about uh, James Murray, uh, who's, who Gibson plays, and he's compiling words for the first English Oxford Dictionary, which is a monumentous task that's literally, you know, compiling every single word in uh, English existence. But, you know, you'd think, oh, okay, that's quite dry. You know, how can, how can they make a linguistic topic really interesting? So the heart of the story is actually about the relationship that he develops with a patient at a lunatic asylum called Docu- Dr. William Minor, who's played by Sean Penn. And he's effectively a schizophrenic and he's suffering from PTSD in the Civil War and he's serving um, a sentence for murder. He's murdered somebody. Um, and it's really about this crazy relationship between the doctor and um, uh, Professor James Murray, who's writing the Oxford Dictionary. And it's a, a friendship that develops uh, between the two of them. Uh, Dr. William Minor is somebody that's really suffering huge amounts of guilt. Uh, he's somebody that I, I suppose effectively society has written off as, um, I guess, impossible and uh, somebody that, you know, is not worth saving, not worth being interested in. Um, and essentially what, what the relationship develops is because uh, the Dr. William Minor starts uh, contributing to the dictionary. So he starts adding, he makes 10,000 entries for um, for the Oxford Dictionary and it, they start meeting. So it's, it's a really, it's an interesting film. And I think it, it lives in that relationship between these two kindred spirits. Um, and I guess the grace that's extended to um, the Sean Penn's character by Mel Gibson's character. And there's a lot of, um, you know, really, really powerful moments in it that really... Um, what, what is it that brings them together? It's because he starts... Uh, so, essentially, in the, the desire to kind of write this Oxford Dictionary, they, they realise it's too big a task for any one man to do. So they start imploring the public to help them. And they say, ask the public, can you contribute a word and a definition and write in? And so this guy in the lunatic asylum gets wind of this and he starts contributing ideas to the dictionary. And he does, at like, 10,000 entries. So it's almost like a combined effort. The, the Oxford Dictionary was written by this lunatic essentially (laughs) somebody that would be considered that way but also by um this professor and um and i guess in the middle of it interwoven in it is really they've got this forgiveness tale where they have the the wife or the widow i suppose of the man that this guy killed um he starts to he's sort of consumed by guilt and he wants to give all of his money to support this widow and so she begrudgingly um, accepts this money and they start a relationship 
whereby she comes and he teaches her to read and it's about forgiveness um, and how she essentially is able to come to a place of forgiving this guy. And I think it's quite a profound true story and there are moments in it that are really powerful. But I think what it suffers from is that it doesn't quite know what it is. So on one hand, you've got this kind of odd coupling relationship between um, Mel Gibson and Sean Penn and the formation of the Oxford Dictionary. And it feels a bit like a sort of imitation game, you know, struggle against the impossible. Let's try and, you know, do this, uh, this monumentous task. And then on the other side, you've got this, um, it almost feels like a once flew over the cuckoo's nest type vibe where you've got this guy and he's suffering shock treatment in this asylum and he's being written off by society and it looks like there's no redemption for his character whatsoever. Um, and then, of course, you've got the love romance sort of strand as well. So it's sort of all of these narratives interwoven. And I think they could have done a little bit of a better job to perhaps link what do, what do you think, Kate, was so, looking at the film from a kind of production point of view and with your with your kind of director's director's eye on what do you think what do you think it told us about the, the period it's set in? What was it what was it giving you that you might not have known before watching it? Yeah, so? I think it's really, really fascinating to see how people suffering with mental issues were treated. There's some really particularly horrifying scenes where the shock treatment is administered to Dr. William Minor and they essentially make him vomit. Um, and they do it so much to the point where he um he's he's they talk about his soul having left his body like he's just not present anymore um and it's it's horrifying and shocking to see how this man was was treated and how his illness his sickness was dealt with during that time and um you know in contrast you've got this character yeah, this this um, Mel Gibson character who shows him friendship and grace, and that's actually the love that he shows him is what pulls him out of his madness, and that's really fascinating. That um, contrast between how do how we treat people and how we love people and how it can pull them out of of horrific problems. Now, now I'd like to think that there'd be a contrast in in the way that we are about, as human beings from eighteen seventy nine to 1917, which is your next choice. Mm. Literally, the title is the period of the film, and obviously, it's the Great War. Did you hear that story about Wilco? How he lost his ear? Not in the mood. Keep your eyes on the trees, top of the ridge. Bet he told you it was shrapnel. What was it, then? Well, you know his girl's a hairdresser, right? And he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. Remember those rancid jakes, Harris? Yeah. Anyway, she sends him over this hair oil. <laughs> Smells sweet. Like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell, but he doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. So, he slathers it all over his barnet and goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics and he jumps up. <laughs> and when he does, the rat bites clean through his ear and runs off with it. Do you know, it's not probably not necessarily the fact that it was set during World War One. It was just the, the way the story and the way it was told was so compelling. Um, and... You know, they, they had commentary, I think. There was a message about the futility, I suppose, of war to a degree. There was a message about the horror of war. Um, and there's one line in there where the character says hope is a... One character says hope is a dangerous thing. And it's really dealing with these things of, you know... Uh, <sighs> You know, is it possible, you know, should we get our hopes up um, to win the war? And it, there's one character in particular at the beginning who's a bit of an um, interesting character because uh, he, he doesn't go home. It's like he has zero hope of ever getting through this war and ever making it back to his family. And he's become, I suppose, such a, a shell of a person that it's, it's almost like the humanity has been pulled out of him or ripped out of him because of the atrocities that, he ha that he's had to commit during war. And yet they've got in this film some beautiful moments of humanity. There's some incredible moments of gentleness and kindness uh, shown towards the enemy as well. Uh, I just, there's so much I love about this film. Um, I think, first of all, it's very clean storytelling. Uh, it's It seems quite simple on the 
as, as you look at it. It's about getting from A to B to stop a massacre from happening. There's very clean intention and obstacle. There's obvious motive because the two out of the two guys, um, the corporals that are sent, one has a brother who's going to be part of the, um, I think it's battalion or uh, that will be massacred if he doesn't make it in time. And then, of course, they have a time pressure and they have really high stakes. So it's simple, but it's absolutely effective. And the thing that I thought was so bold about this is it's told through one single shot. And I was really skeptical when I went to go on and watch it. I was like, how is this going to work? One single shot, you know, over time, am I not going to get bored? Is it not going to be gimmicky? Is it going to be really rubbish? Um, uh, so I just, I didn't know how it could work. And I was just amazed by how beautifully it works. It just totally throws you into the position of these two main characters and you discover the world as they discover it. And sometimes it follows them and sometimes it overtakes them, but most, mostly you actually just see the world through their lens. And I think Sam Mendes, he had a quote and he talked about, um, you don't want to, he talked about evoking horror in the film and he talked about, you don't want to know what's around the corner, but you have to go. And there's so much of that in the film. It's like you, there were so many times it jumped out of my skin because what they chose to conceal and reveal was so clever. It's like you're kind of with them and you're sort of terrified at the same time as are they going to encounter the enemy? Are they going to be shot at? You know, what's going to be around the corner? Um, and actually there was one moment which, uh, which definitely made me jump out of my skin. It was when they get into the German trenches and the Germans have essentially evacuated and they, they lull you into this sense of safety and security. They got spine, they're all gone. And then a rat comes down and kind of grabs some food and, uh, and triggers a tripwire that the Germans have set up and that is an explosion. And it's, it's just what they do is they just lull you into this sense of sort of security and then sort of all of a sudden you just get hit with the next thing that comes, um, comes along. So it's, it's, yeah, I think it's storytelling is really clever. It's pacing is very good. Yeah, because in a way... I was going to say because in a way the 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 period it doesn't really interact with sort of civilized life. It's 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 trenches and it's big no. open spaces in the countryside. So it in is. a in a way it's sort of as long as the detailing's right in what people are wearing and the vehicles that the occasional vehicle we see, then the the idea of holding your disbelief that we're in World War One. I'm not saying I'm not for one mm. minute suggesting it was easy, but but it, it, it's simplified by the nature of the journey that the, the, the two guys have to make, and like Definitely. you say, it, it like concertinas between the story of the big struggle, which is to get from point A to point B, and then it goes really tight and says, actually no, there's a problem right in front of us now, exactly, which yeah. is which is yeah. which is all or nothing. Because if yeah, if we absolutely. fail here, then we failed everything. And you're right, because it, it's not a film where there's lots of bloodshed and tons of violence, which obviously I think we've seen a lot of in, in war films. So it's very different from that perspective. But there is a sense that carnage and violence is right, like they're right in the midst of it and they're almost walking through it. So there's one... Uh, you know when they're walking through no man's land at the very beginning of the film and yeah. you see that these these dead bodies are literally woven into the fabric of the landscape. So you, it's like where's Wally? You're picking out like boots and, you know, faces and it's it's shocking. It's, yeah. No, no, you're right. And, and I think I think it gets the... Uh... The, the the futility the futility element of war doesn't doesn't ever really need stating because the notion that that thousands of lives hang in the balance of a twenty one year old man getting to a yeah. point by a certain time you kind of wonder Absolutely. what the hell anybody who started a war had any hand any right in doing it in the first place. Absolutely, and and actually, you know the the moments that they do show where they sort of break down, um, they show you know, some horrific moments, but then they balance it out and they just show that these guys are still human and they're still, um, you know, like there's one scene particularly with the French woman underground and she's nursing a baby and uh, Lance Corporal gives her the last, you know, his milk and he gives her his food and they have this really intimate, like, beautiful moment that's so human and then he goes out and he's, he's facing just carnage. And it's just, yeah, it's just so, it's the contrast is, is um, very, I don't know, it's arresting, very well, arresting. Well, the contrast couldn't be greater in terms of, I guess, scope and scale between running the length and breadth of France to save thousands of people to hidden figures in 1970.
So this one I wanted to choose because it's very different in tone to all the other ones. You know, a bunch of them can be feel quite heavy. This one, I think, is actually a very joyful film. It's very enjoyable. It's charming. It's telling a very engaging story. It's, it's a bit of a crowd pleaser, this one. Um, and I think there's something really um, compelling and awe-inspiring about the space race, about this kind of mission to, to put man on the moon and to launch, uh, you know, man into space. And it's such a lofty human endeavour. And I think that's why so much has been made on this. And um, actually the uh, feature film that I'm doing next is it touched on themes of, of this as well in terms of the space race. And um, one of our characters is an ex-NASA rocket engineer. So I, I think it's appealing to me for those reasons, but um, also as well, because you get these, you know, in the title, it's about hidden figures. It's about these three brilliant African-American women um, who were the brains behind, well, served as uh, part of the brains behind one of the greatest operations in history. And I just, I love the fact that it's uncovering their role and their part to play and sort of, um, yeah, it's just it's a really great, great story about these three women and their struggles that they had to face and also the friendship that they had together. And I think they really evoke um, the period really beautifully. I, I remember reading something that the cinematographer wrote and she was talking about uh, drawing on the visual iconography of the early 60s and she studied a lot of photographs from the period uh, and she also looked at sort of... Um, I think one of the sort of paintings or photographs from, uh, from someone during the period that also did very lush, colourful street scenes. And I think you can definitely see that. There's this definitely colour in the film. Um, I think there's, you know, in the, the space centre, NASA centre, it's quite grey, but the women and the worlds that they inhabit, there's a warmth and a, um, a life and... Um, yeah, a lot of colour to that given, world. I think given obviously, given obviously the, the the racist backdrop of of America that this story is being told, and obviously it had to wait till two thousand nineteen to be told. So you know, fifty years, mm. almost fifty years after the fact. What what's what's the sort of um, how, how are how are three African American women involved in in something so high profile at what is a very racist time in in American history? Yeah, so I think because they were considered to be computers, which is, uh, you know, they didn't have, uh, they waiting in the film for the IBM machine to come along. And so they had these computers and essentially it was considered to be like an admin job and women were placed in admin jobs at the time. And so I think that's why essentially they, they fell into these positions because it was considered admin, but actually they were incredibly intelligent to be able to do, you know, um, the sums and the, uh, you know, engineering feats and everything that they did and that they detail these women doing. Mm. Um, so it's really, it's almost like they snuck in underneath underneath the radar um, because of the, the prejudice that was against women at the time, which is really fascinating. And one of my favourite scenes actually at the beginning, and I think they deal with it so well, is that you've got... Um, you've got the the girls waiting by the side of the road and they get picked up by a police officer and you think, oh, no, this isn't going to end well. And then they start telling him about their role at NASA and the fact that they know these, you know, um, astronauts. And he goes, oh, well, if you're going to be late to work, I should give you a police escort. And they're driving down the road. And this is one great line that uh, I think it's Mary Jackson says, and she says, three ne Negro women are chasing a white police officer down a highway in Hampshire, Virginia, in 1961. Ladies, that's a God-ordained miracle. <laughs> and it's just the way they do it, the, the way they bring humour into a really heavy subject and um, they make it feel triumphant. And they it's just it's very clever. And I think they use like devices like the toilet very cleverly. So they had segregated bathrooms at the time. And one of the main characters is working um, to to do some really, really tricky computing um, and figures, and they're really up against the clock. And she has to keep running, like, a mile to the bathroom. Where the hell have you been? Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where the hell do you go every day? To the bathroom, sir. To the bathroom. To the damn bathroom. For 40 minutes a day? What are you doing there? We're T-minus zero here. I put a lot of faith in you. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you there here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. 
Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, living off a coffee from a pot none of you want to touch. And, and it's just, you know, um, really fascinating to see how her character evolves and stands up to, you know, the, um, I guess, some of the, the, the guys that would, you know, force her to do that. Um, and there's one really powerful scene where she sort of says a speech to all of the white suits in the room and she talks about the prejudice that they're showing her. And, and it's, it's just very empowering. Right then, rather disappointingly, not not your choice, but rather uh, we, we, when we when we when we were in, when we were still in the locker room um, on email, rather disappointingly, this is a period that was made in 2019, but the period that it's set in is 1998. Now I have a certain vintage that that makes me think that 98 was last week. Um, so um, what what are we seeing in a beautiful day in the neighbourhood? Who's Maggie Stewart? Hey, Mr. Rogers. In a way, what are the challenges? Because it's it's quite, in a way, period 1917 is much easier to define than period yeah, 1998. Yeah. I mean, I can I can obviously imagine we've got no telephones hanging around everywhere, but but you know, modern day life is very much happening in 98, and and you know, like I said, apart from devices in our hand, what what's the difference between then and now? So what is what is the difference between then and now that you see in this film? Well, I think the interesting thing is that the film is actually based on uh, a character called Fred Vogler, who was a children's television presenter. And it's based on a, a, a sort of thing called A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, which is quite uh, an old children's TV show. So there's loads of archival footage of that. And uh, that's older than 1998. 1998 was when the actual article was written that this film is the true story was inspired by. Um, and so he's almost like a Val parents' generation. Our parents probably grew up watching this. So um, it's definitely, you know, beyond the, the time of mobile phones and, um, you know, they use little models in the, um, in the sets and stuff. So it's, it's, it feels of an age, um, I think, because of the TV show that it's based on. But, yeah, essentially it's inspired by this true story where Tom Juno uh, wrote an article called Can You Say Hero? And he was a journalist at the time who was known to be someone that dishes the dirt on his subjects. Um, and he gets acquainted, has to write an article on Fred Vogler, who's considered to be an American hero and a symbol of everything that's right and good. And the premise is that he goes in and he wants to take this guy down. And I think because obviously we've been surrounded with so many stories of people that have, uh, you know, horrific stuff that's come out in the media of late, of people that have been in these positions uh, that, you know, are actually not the real deal. Um, and, you know, so, so you get the sense that he's wanting to uncover and he's wanting to kind of take this guy down. And the amazing thing is, uh, what I love so much about it is that he goes in as a cynic, an absolute cynic, thinking this guy is not for real. You know, he's just, um, you know, he's not, not the way that he is on camera because he comes across as very... Um, like the kindest man ever and Tom Hanks is a great choice to play the role um but yeah it's it's fascinating because he he realizes that this guy is the real deal and that he's not you know um not 
playing a character as it were on television that just is the way that he is and they're really clever what they do is they sort of use this really like it it kind of threw me out because they use devices that we're not used to in cinema so the way that they sort of intertwine the conventions of the television show that it's based on into real life is really fascinating so throughout the film they've got like exterior shots of new york um, and they're shown as miniature models. <laughs> so really quirky and like really unique. It's a bit like Wes Anderson sequences. And then you've got like a fictionalized show where um, the Fred Rogers character is kind of talking about Lloyd, who's the journalist, as if he were one of the subjects on his show. And he's talking to the audience about his emotions and the way that he struggles with them because the show is based on essentially teaching children how to deal with negative emotions. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating to see the devices that they use are just very different. Um, and the cinematography that they've used is very much to try and evoke the bright colours of Rogers' world. So Fred Rogers is children's entertainer. So obviously, you know, they've got sort of all the colourful, vibrant colours of his world, but then you've got that contrasted with kind of cynics' world, which is kind of muted tones and colours and quite harsh, cold reality. And they throw these two ideas together of the kind of, the idealist, the the person that kind of sees the world through rose-tinted glasses and Fred Rogers versus the cynic. And it's really fascinating, this combination or a sort of banging of the two heads. And um So so in a way, so so the, so the kind of yeah. the, the the sort of holier than thou character is actually genuinely doesn't have a bad bone in his body and he, he brings doesn't. he no. bring, he brings out the kind of I guess tempers stroke brings sort of exercises the evil cynic that's in the journalist who Absolutely. thinks he thinks his job is. Well, what's, and the amazing thing about the story is that it flips it on its head. So you've got the sort of journalist, the cynic, and he's going in there and trying to write this piece and interrogate. Like the interview sequences are almost like interrogations. It's like he's trying to like get the meat, get the dirt. And this guy's just so authentic and so genuine. And actually what he ends up doing is he ends up flipping the interview back on, on the... Um, the cynic and and he sort of ends up uh sort of asking him about his own life and almost counseling him in terms of uh his broken relationship with his father so it's really beautiful by the end of the story you've got um you've got through this relationship this very unlikely relationship you have this fred rogers character affecting uh the journalist in such a way that by the end of the film he's been able to forgive his father who he's done absolute uh horrendous things to him and he's able to forgive him and mm. you see this really beautiful sequence where you've got uh a once estranged imperfect family who've learned to forgive and heal and it's uh, yeah i totally recommend this film it's stuck in my mind and stuck in my brain for you know months after I watching mean, it's it so, I just it's keep... so, i'm gonna say as a as a, as a in, in debt in these days of sort of high concept or 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 high or, or, or you know huge recognizable intellectual property films that knock about the idea of of this sort of tiny story being anything sort of a value i mean i think you've, you've sold the idea really you've sold the idea to me certainly very well um in terms of it's sort of it, it, what's what's interesting is it can it's it, the way you're telling talking about it it's sort of the audience go on the journalist journey of discovery oh, and yeah. self-discovery absolutely and i don't there is one thing actually i'd love to say which is they've very, very clever in making you squeam as an audience. So they they sit in the moments of being very uncomfortable. And there is one particular moment that comes to mind where um, the Fred Rogers character turns to the cynic and they're sitting in a diner and he says, take one minute and think about um, every person who's loved you to being. And he's talking about his father as well because his father's done horrible things. Mm. And so they're literally minute in the film and it's like the suspended reality all of the characters in the diner stop talking they all are sort of introspectively looking and then they break the fourth wall the fred rogers character turns and he looks straight in the camera and looks straight at you almost challenging you to kind of go you know think about this yourself think about you know the people that have affected you and loved you to be who you are today and it's a really like it's it's really uncomfortable but uncomfortable in a really good way if that makes sense no 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 because i think i think i think one of the one of the sort of banes of modern life and certainly modern urban life living in sort of a you know sort of a city like london uh, and a country like britain is that you you can spend too much of your life being cynical of everybody that everybody's out to get mm. you and that you end up not 
placing any faith or trust in anyone. You know, you can very yeah. easily put that, but that barrier can just stay up all the time. So you're not inviting anyone in mm. and that can extend into you. You can end up bringing that into your personal life and then you're completely lost. And I think that idea, reminding ourselves that we, if we do stop and think and don't let life overtake us, there is, there are people that love us, there are people that care for us. And, and that's, that can be quite empowering uh, to, to sort of reconsider. Mm. I think there's lots, There's I, I've been reading lots about um, sort of confidence tricks almost to play on yourself. It's like, you know, before you start the day, just think of three things that made you happy the day before. Because, mm. and it might just be you made a good bowl of porridge, but it, like, you know, it's it's still, it's still, if it made you happy, then 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 go for it, you know, kind of thing. Don't dwell, yeah. don't let everything be about oh, what's wrong with my life, what's wrong with my life, because, you know, yeah. there's, no, there's nowhere to but progress. But the great thing, that it does as well is it doesn't deny the fact that there is really nasty stuff out there mm. and that we do have negative emotions to deal with, but it's talking about how we can deal with them in a healthy way. And there's, there's one other scene where the main character, he, you know, I think he asked him, don't you ever get angry? You have to deal with so much because it's almost like this Fred Rogers character is carrying a weight of so many heavy things on his shoulder. And he says, you know, when I get, I do get angry, but when I get angry, I just play all the low bass notes on the piano. And it releases something. And you see him at the end of the film, he's playing the low notes. And it's just like, it's it's really, really interesting. It's it's such a clever film. Yeah. Well, look, um, we've come to the end of our five great period uh, dramas. So I'm just going to, I'm going to recount them. I'll do the five and then we'll draw back. We'll come back and draw attention to your film. Um, so we went to 1873 with The Revenant. We fast forwarded half a century and more to uh, The Professor and the Madman. Uh, then we jumped another half a century-ish to 1917. And then, in fact, yeah, we did it again. We almost went another half century to 1970. <laughs> and then we almost arrived at present day in 1998. Um, but in between all that, we got a chance to talk about The Widow's Last, your short film set in uh, Black 47. Um, and and let's remind people how they can see that. Yep, absolutely. You can all watch it on a platform called omeletto.com, which is a YouTube channel. Uh, so that's www.omeletto.com. Brilliant. I'll put a link in the show notes. Just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Blitflix podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Stuart. It's been an absolute pleasure. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.